think this is our uh, 11th sermon, so we're about three months-ish uh, into Ecclesiastes, and um, I'd have to say that it's probably, it might be my favorite sermon series I think that I've been um, personally going through. Um, it's been so helpful for me, so um, uh, just shifting my own perspective and, and really helping me a ton just in my own life, and I, I hope that's the same for you. Um, but uh, the reality that, of, of, that the preacher here, Solomon, is going after week in and week out is um, just so pertinent for our lives. Uh, recently, I was, um, uh, one of Micah, my oldest son, one of uh, his friends was texting me and was saying that he's afraid to go to high school. He's in eighth grade going into high school this year. And we, um, we chatted a bit over text, and one of his fears that he had was just new pressures, being in a bigger school with much older people and uh, and people that happen to be teenagers, and, um, and when a lot of times when I talk to the young guys, uh, my son's friends, we talk about a lot of various things, just all the things that are just important to them or pertinent to them, the things that are going on uh, maybe in their own life or maybe in their friends' lives, and, or maybe the things that they see kind of coming down the pipeline, things like drinking and peer pressure and drug use and uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, girls, of course, as I'm talking mostly with boys here. Um, and a lot of times I'll be asking these boys I'll say, so do you guys want to go down that road? And they say, oh, no, coach, we don't, we don't want to do any of those things. And you and I both know that, you know, when you're 10, 11, 12, even 13, you're kind of thinking, I'm going to get through high school and call it. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But then something does change. And so I asked them, well, what are you going to do to stay away from that? Right now, you're saying, I'm not going to get into that, coach. I'm going to stay away. That stuff's stupid. And I'm like, good, I, I agree. But what are you going to do? And and they usually answer with something. I remember the first time I asked this, uh, the boy said, I'm just gonna say no, coach. I said, oh, oh, you're just, you're just gonna say no. Oh, is, is that all it takes? Because if I would have known that in high school, then I could have maybe saved myself a lot of problems. If my friends just knew all you had to do was say no, then maybe my friends could have spared themselves from a lot of problems. But of course, it's not that simple, is it? It's not, I mean, it, it is, but it's not. It is that simple, but... Doing that actually doesn't usually work. It doesn't usually happen. And so I usually will reply to them and I'll say, well, have you ever done anything in your life that you knew was wrong and you didn't actually want to do it because you knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway? And of course they laugh and they snicker, well, of course, coach. I'm going, but why did you do it? I said, well, because we're kids. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I understand that, but if you knew it was wrong, and you didn't want to do it, but you did it. Anyway, why would you do that? And, and they just had to think about it a little bit, and they thought that whatever that pressure was, whatever that thing, whatever was more important to them than saying no, that thing took precedence. And so I asked them, why do you think that if you can't even say no to little things that you know is wrong, and you still do that anyway, whether it's, you know, stealing a device and playing video games for longer than you're supposed to or not making your bed when you know you're supposed to and you say, no, mom, I made my bed and then you go out and you play anyway or whatever. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. If you can't even have that kind of self-control with small things, what makes you think you're going to be impervious to bigger pressures? And what I usually am doing is that I'm trying to bring them to a conclusion that they don't have the strength in themselves to do this. And this isn't just a teenager problem. This isn't just a, a boys will be boys kind of a problem. This is a human problem. This is a man problem and a woman problem. 
a kid problem and an adult problem. This is just a human problem. We often know what is the right thing to do, the right answer, and we even desire to do the right thing, but something in us still leads us astray. Something draws us, and before we know it, we're doing something, or taking part of something, or living in a way that we never intended on living. And today, the preacher is going to be looking at his own life here in Ecclesiastes, and the fact that despite having wisdom, this preacher still made poor choices. He fell for traps. We need something more than just saying no and having self-will. That only goes so far. We need something more than just knowing what is right, because even when we know what's right, we still do wrong. We need the actual power to change us. So I want to pray as we jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and ask the Lord to help us to open our eyes, to show us maybe some of our weaknesses, our weak spots, our blindness, the parts of our life where we think maybe a little bit too arrogantly that we got this, and get to a point where we say, Lord, we surrender. We need your power to work in us. Heavenly Father, we open your word today, and we are thankful that you've given us this great gift this book that you've given us that leads us and guides us. And it's not just good advice. It's not just wise sayings. But your word is your power in print. We read your word and your word goes in us and it actually changes us. It reshapes us. It reforms us. It does something in us that no other book can possibly do. Other books could give us good advice and good tactics but your word is alive, it's living and powerful. It's active, it grows inside of us, your word tells us. It abides in us, it finds a home in our hearts, and it changes. And so we are asking this morning, Father, that your word would change us today, even if just a little tiny bit, a little tweak in our brain, a little readjustment in our hearts, a new focus in our eyes, whatever it might be, we ask that your word would work in us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us into your truth today and let your word change our hearts. And in the mighty name, the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 25, we're gonna be going through 29 this morning. The preacher here says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I know sometimes this particular book can be a little confusing to read through because it's poetic, uh, it's from a Hebrew perspective, in a time that is not our time. 
This was about 1,000 BC, so this is 3,000 years ago. But there's some fascinating reflections from the author here, some intriguing thoughts that he looks upon in his life and observes. Now, just a little bit of refresher or background, just a reminder of this preacher who was probably Solomon. Solomon was the third king of Israel. He was the uh, son of King David, lived, as I said, about 1,000 BC. He had a very successful kingdom. Solomon was a man who actually did please God. So he mentions the man who pleases God here. The person who stays away from this seductive woman is the, the man who pleases God. Well, Solomon was a man who pleased God. God gave him wisdom beyond measure, gave him wisdom beyond any other person in the land. So Solomon was so incredibly wise as gifted by God because God found favor in Solomon. Yet Solomon also falls for what he calls the snares, the nets, and the fetters of women. Snares, uh, it's a word we don't use a ton, but it snares just a trap, like a bear trap. Fetters are like shackles or, or handcuffs. And so he says this seductive type of a woman is like set to trap for you. Something lures you. It's like a net that you get tangled in. Or it's like handcuffs. Something just draws you to her. And he warns that being caught up in this deceitfulness of, of lust in the heart and the desire for women is a, a bitter thing, more bitter than death. He says in verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God, though, escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her, trapped by her. Now Solomon, despite having been given this wisdom from God, great wisdom from God, Solomon actually had 700 wives and 300 concubines. For lack of a technical term, 300 concubines, it's like having 300 girlfriends. But, you know, he had 700 women he was more exclusively committed to. Good guy. God had made it clear that marriage was only for one man and for one wife. He made that very clear. He also made it clear and clearly warned against marrying anyone who is outside of the Jewish faith because God knows that when we are having our hearts attached and we become one with someone or when we become 700 with someone, we're going to get so attached to them that their faith, the important, most important thing in their life, their faith, worshiping false gods, pagan gods, is going to draw us away from our faith. And so he warned against this. He warned that this would lead us astray if we go outside of our faith when it comes to who we become one with and commit our life to. And yet Solomon did this a thousand times with these wives and these girlfriends. And that is exactly what happened to him. These women who worshiped other gods, they led Solomon away from his faith. So now we read this and it seems to be that he's actually reflecting upon his own life. Read again in verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. He has found this. He knows this. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, what's fascinating is that Solomon knows that God has been pleased with him because God has blessed him, blessed his kingdom, blessed him personally. So he could find himself in that category if God is pleased with me, but yet the one who pleases God, escapes her, but he didn't actually escape her. He was taken by her. 
And then taking into the verses from before that we saw last week, in verse 20, it says that there's no one who is righteous and never sins, even if they have the wisdom of God. Even if you know God's word so well, even if you go to church every single week, there is no one who escapes this plight of sin. So it seems that Solomon's eating maybe a little bit of humble pie here. He knows that God is pleased with him and given him wisdom, but he also knows that he himself has gotten a bit arrogant, a bit lazy, a bit self-righteous, did things his own way and got entangled in these nets, realized that though God is indeed pleased with him, he's still a sinner with a wayward heart. I think he finds himself in both of these categories that he names, a man who pleases God, yet also a sinner. And before we go any deeper into this, into the, the main point, I want to note something because it almost seems like he's picking on women here. It's kind of the tone that almost it sounds like, like he's blaming the seductive woman or women. And he has this interesting little adage, speaking of finding someone who's upright and finding someone who's not a snare or trap, he says this, one man among a thousand I found. I found one guy out of a thousand that was not a snare or a net for me. One wise man in a thousand. But a woman I found uh, among all these I have not found. I found one guy who was wise, but I found no women. It sounds like he, it's really a slight towards women. And now on the surface, it, it seems this way. It seems as if he's saying, and really on the surface, he's saying, hey, I found a great guy among a thousand, but I didn't find any women. That does seem like that's what he's saying on the top, on the top level. And some believe, commentaries wise and theologians believe that this is maybe a, a modern day for his time proverb, and then Solomon brings it up to, to comment on it. Like that was a popular saying back then, possibly. That it's not his thought, but a common thought of the day, and that could be. And if it is, I don't think that Solomon's intending at all by quoting that to give men any kind of real edge over the women here. Because let's face it, one out of a thousand, that's not very good. So it's not that he's complimenting the men here and saying, oh yeah, and the women, <laughs> you know, he's saying only one out of a thousand, if that's the case. But it's not meant to be still a slight towards women. Because it's interesting to me as I read through this that What's recorded as his harem of women is actually a thousand. It's a thousand as recorded in the Bible. So it seems like he's actually speaking of his own actual experience. He's reflecting, saying, I have a thousand women, and they've all led me astray. It seems like he's actually maybe loathing his own personal choices for relationships and companionship. He speaks at length in the other book of the Bible, Proverbs, that he penned uh, most of, speaking of the importance of having good friendships, the importance of being around good people who point you towards God, and the folly, the mistake of chasing romantic pleasure sinfully and selfishly. He pens a lot of great Proverbs about that, and so he might be reflecting on himself saying, I think of all the, the men in my life, the people that have surrounded me, I'm the king of Israel. And I've got one guy who I can really trust. I've got Zadok, the high priest. He's a good guy. And then I look at all the thousand women that I took into my home, none of them. So it doesn't seem at all to me like he's putting down women by saying there was one guy and no women. I think he's just reflecting on his own foolishness, his own lack of wisdom, despite having wisdom, his own heart that has deceived him 
and made choices to surround himself with people that he shouldn't be surrounding himself with. So whether it's a proverb of his day or an observation, it's not a slight against women. Actually, let me back up. It is a slight against women, but it's also a slight against men. It's a slight against humans. That in and of ourselves, both men and women, and even probably a more specific slight against Solomon himself. I think the focus here isn't men or women. I think that he's saying, this is what is my life. I've got one person that I can trust in my life because I've made poor choices. I think that Solomon is mostly reflecting on himself and his bad choices. Because look how he follows up this comment. He's, you know, he's saying, only one out of a thousand men and no women. Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this even better here. Verse 29, see, this alone I actually found. You might say one man among a thousand and no women, but here's what I found. That God made man to be upright. God made us in his image to be upright, but they, both men and women, they have sought out many schemes. So saying, look, look, look what I've done with my life. Here's what I've been surrounded with. God made us upright, but yet all of us have gone astray. We chase after our own schemes. And again, taking this in context, tying into the previous verse, he says, look, you seem surprised that you haven't found anyone righteous. Well, guess what? There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who is righteous and does not sin. Why would you be surprised that out of 2,000 people in my life, someone's saying, I only found one. The reality is there's actually no one. Even Zadok the high priest is a sinner. Even Solomon, all of his wisdom is a sinner. Now it's true that we are made in God's image, meant to reflect the image of God. I was driving with my younger son yesterday, and I was actually kind of talking to him about this very thing, being made in the image of God, and I said, I asked him, um, what's, what's something that reflects something? And right away he said, a mirror. I said, so when you have a mirror, is the mirror... The, th the actual thing, or is it just a reflection? He said it's just a reflection. So we started talking about this, and the reality for something like a mirror and the reality for us is that a mirror, if I look in a mirror, the mirror is not me. It's just a reflection of me. It's a different object altogether. It doesn't have all the same exact properties as me at all, but it reflects my image. It has my reflection. It looks like me, at least from one angle, and you and I were made to be reflections, the image of God. We're not like God through and through, just like a mirror isn't like me through and through, but we reflect God's image. This is why we can do many of the things that God does, like love people, serve people, be sacrificial, be faithful, be loyal. We can have a lot of those things in our life because we're made in his image. Even people who don't know Jesus, who are not born again, who don't have the Holy Spirit inside them, they still can reflect God's image. This is why we have many people of different faiths, different backgrounds, even people who are uh, in prison for the rest of their life for uh, cr so just crazy crimes. They still have the image of God in their life. There's something in them that still reflects God. The most moral person and the most immoral person on this planet still reflects God. And the thing is about us being like mirrors, I said, well, what happens with us? I said, what do you think has happened? If we're supposed to image God, and, and Liam just said, he goes, well, we're broken mirrors. And I said, oh, yeah. 
or broken mirrors. Well, what happens to a, a broken mirror? And he goes, well, it still reflects, but it's messed up. And that's exactly the state we find ourselves in church. We're mirrors. Believers, non-believers, men, women, we're mirrors, but we're broken mirrors. We still reflect God, but not perfectly. Sometimes even in a distorted way. We distort the things of God. We take something like love and we turn it into lust. We take something like generosity and we take it and turn it into something as a, a way to get praise for being so kind and generous. As broken mirrors, the image is distorted. Now, remember that the mirror isn't the object being reflected. So God is not distorted. He's still perfectly fine. But you and me, we're distorting him. We're distorting his image, even though he remains the same. And so though God has made us upright, he's made us as mirrors, we become broken. We scheme and we chase what we want. And that's much of what Solomon is driving into here in this text here, how our own hearts lead us astray. He's not blaming the seductive woman. He's focusing in on how he has made these poor choices, how he knows he's been made upright, but his own heart has created schemes to get what he wants despite having wisdom, despite knowing that it's wrong, but he still goes after it. He knows that there's no one on this earth that is righteous. And he's reflecting on his own life saying, look what I've done despite having God's wisdom at my fingertips. And though I was made upright in his image with eternity in my heart, as Solomon has said earlier, I still plan out my schemes. If you ever read Homer's Odyssey, maybe when you were in high school or junior high, or you remember this part of the story uh, where there's the sirens. You guys remember the sirens? They were half bird, half women on this island, and they would sing this song, and the song was so beautiful, so mesmerizing that people that were going by in ships would want to get close to hear the song of the sirens. But really what the sirens were doing was trying to lure them towards their island so that their boat would crash upon the rocks and just be devoured by the sea, destroy the people in the boat. And if you were foolish and you fell for it, you fell for the trap, the snare, the fetters of the sirens, you would just go, oh, that sounds so great. Even if you were forewarned by people, say, hey, don't, don't go near that island. But once you heard that song, you go, well, what, what's wrong with just hearing a little bit of the song? And so the hero of the story, Odysseus, he, he wanted to hear the song of the sirens. And so some people back home said, all right, if you want to do that, here's what you need to do. Put wax in your crew's ears so they can't hear it, and then have them tie you to the mast of the ship, and then tell them to go close to the island so you can hear the song, but you can't control the ship, you can't give orders, they can't hear the songs of the siren, they can't hear your plea to go even closer to the island. And so Odysseus says, that sounds like a great idea. So he gets on the boat and he has them tie him up on the mast, puts wax in their ears and they're going and he's hearing the song of the sirens and it is just the most beautiful thing he's ever heard. He said it was like the voice of Helen of Troy. He was just so mesmerized by this. And he was yelling down to his crew saying, go to the island, let's go to the island. But he gave specific orders beforehand. No, take this path, just get close enough. Don't go too near because we'll crash into the rocks. 
And his crew ignored him and just said, no, we're going to keep going. Because in the crew's eyes, since they couldn't hear the Song of the Sirens, they're looking at these beasts on the island going, we're not going near them. See, they weren't tricked and ensnared by the sound. So they saw with clear vision that this isn't a good thing. And our boss is kind of a crazy man. And we're not going to listen to this guy. We're going to keep his orders. We're going to keep going past this island. Now, when our hearts, when our own hearts lure us away, we all have something that is like the song of the sirens in our lives. Something that's just, we just want to get just close enough. We, we know it's not good to go to the island because we know there'll be destruction, but, but we, just, we just want a little bit. I don't want the whole thing. I just, I just, want, I just want a taste of it. I'm not going to get myself in trouble. I don't want to go that far. I know better. I'm just going to say no, and I'm just going to get this close. We want to get what we want. We want to get the beautiful song, whatever that thing might be for us. Even though we know to go one more step is dangerous, but we still go anyway, and we just want to go halfway. And those that God puts in our life, those who don't hear the same song you hear, they're not enticed by the same thing. They're looking at your life going, look, I know you really want that thing, but it's not good. You need to stay away because they've got wax in their ears. We have God's word that tells us clearly what we should stay away from, what we should go after. But if we are just dead set on getting close, we find ourselves in ruin. We all have these blind spots. Maybe we think too highly of ourselves. We trust in our own morality a bit too much, self-righteous. We trust our own wisdom. We, we follow our hearts. We think we can just say no and have perfect self-control. Solomon had the wisdom of God, but yet still decided to follow his own heart. Even though he knew what God's law said, he knew where it would take him, but he still followed his own heart despite having God's wisdom. He did not have the ability to just say no when he knew he was going down a road that he shouldn't have gone down. And it seems he even loathes how he followed his heart in choosing his, his male friendships as well, saying only one out of a thousand. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's, it's a broken mirror that we can't quite trust the image of. Yes, there's things that we do right, there's motives that we do have right, but we can't quite trust it completely because it's broken, it's shattered, it's distorted, there's pieces missing. There's countless ways we do this, especially with relationships, as Solomon's commenting on. Maybe it's dating someone that doesn't have our values or our faith. We say, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. But then down the road, you get married and you realize we don't have this most important thing, our faith and what we think about God, we don't have this in common. Or maybe it's living together before we get married, or premarital sex before we get married. Playing house. Taking the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. Making a mockery out of this great and amazing gift of marriage. We say, God, I know you designed it, but you know what, I'm gonna do it my way. Or outside of things like that, outside of relationships. Maybe it's making purchases beyond our means. Or being convinced by jealousy and greed and thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. If I only just had this, if I lived here, if I had this job or these friends, if I had this spouse, then I would be happy. Then things would be different. 
See, we don't want everything. We just, we just want a little more. That's all we want. That's all that Odysseus wanted. He just wanted a little taste of the siren song. He didn't want to actually go be with them. He just wanted a taste of it. But we all go astray, and we all go further than where we plan on going. We have to learn to truly trust God's wisdom. And we need to be clear about something as well, that God's ways aren't given to us because He doesn't want us to enjoy life. He doesn't give us these different things so He can take away our fun. There's a false narrative out there that says God wants to stifle our freedom and our peace and our joy and our identity, our fun, that God is just trying to be the the big killjoy. I'll use this example, especially because Solomon's talking specifically about uh, women and sexual sin here. When I do my fight clubs with uh, my son and his friends, uh, we, with this topic comes up, dating, girls, girlfriends, all this stuff. And I tell them, I say, boys, God is not trying to take fun away from you. And they'll ask me, some of them ask in you know, more kind of crass ways than others because they're 14, but they'll say, but coach, why is it, why is it bad for me just to, to, to think about a girl, uh, have her in my imagination? I'm, I'm not hurting anybody. Why, why is that wrong to look at a girl with that? I mean, I'm not, there's, I'm not doing anything. Why is that wrong? Why is, it, why is it wrong, coach, to have sex before you get married? What if you really love someone? What if you're committed to them? What if you know you're going to get married? Isn't that okay, coach? What's so bad, coach, about living together and just trying things out? Because what if, you, what if you end up getting married and you realize it doesn't really work out? And, and these are the things that these kids are asking. And they're good questions, they're good logical questions. And I tell them, I said, boys, we should not think about God as being some cosmic killjoy, that he's, he has his ways to take away joy. Let's remind ourselves that marital union, marriage union, oneness with another human being, the intimacy that comes from being one with someone, the design of relationship, both romantic as well as with deep friendships in our lives, these were all God's idea. This was his idea. He created these very things. He created the love between two friends. He created the intimacy between a man and a wife. He created our bodies to be how they are. This was God's idea in the first place. And so I think about this. I've shared this with them where I said, look, God designed for us to be able to create life, to have babies. And of course, the boys know how babies are made. And I said, now, Boys, he could have made it that being in his image, we would create babies in life just like how he did by essentially just making sandcastles in the backyard because that's really what God did in the garden. He made a little sandcastle of Adam from dust. He blew into his nostrils and he became alive. And he did the same thing with Eve. Now, he could have said to Adam and Eve, now I want you to go be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Go into your garden, make a little sandcastle of a kid, blow into the nose, and it's going to come alive. And that's how we could procreate throughout the course of human history if God desired it to be that way. And that sounds kind of boring. Instead, God creates a whole new way 
for a man and a woman to bring life into the world. And he makes it in a way to where you experience oneness between your, this husband and this wife, this unity that is unlike anything else. I tell the boys, look, with your friends, you give them a fist bump, maybe a hug. You know, with your, um, with your, your mom, you might give her a kiss. But when it comes to sex, when it comes to intimacy, you only have one person that you share that with. And this is the person that you've committed your life to and they've committed their life to you. It's this special thing that you don't just, you know, you, you go and fist bump anyone you want. You can hug many people, but this one bit of union between a husband and a wife is just for them. And God made this special for the husband and the wife. It's not meant to be shared with 700 wives or 300 girlfriends, but it's meant to be between one and another. And God did not have to do it this way. He could have made procreation and raising babies so much more boring just making sculptures in the backyard. And so I tell the boys, I said, don't think for a second that God wants to steal your joy from you and rob the fun of life. He's the one who created these things for us to enjoy. But he knows the best way for us to possibly enjoy life. He says, Look, son, look, daughter, I, I, want you, I want you to have joy in your life. So I, I know how the world works. I created I created man to be upright. You guys are the ones who have schemed away. You guys are the ones who have broken my rules and laws and invited sin and sickness and death into the world. Now, if you just trust me, I'm the architect. I've built this whole thing. If you trust me and follow my ways, even if you don't like my ways, but if you trust me and trust my ways, I will give you joy overflowing in your life. I will give you a life so abundant, it will mesmerize you that despite even all the bad things going on, you're gonna have joy. Now, I'm not saying you're gonna smile every single day of your life or just be skipping through the field. There's gonna be tough stuff that comes, but if you trust me and you follow me, I'm gonna lead you through the valley of the shadow of death and you will not have to fear any evil because I will be with you at your side. I will be before you, I'll be behind you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Nothing will be able to pluck you out of my Father's hands. He makes these promises, and these were his ideas, not ours. These were his ideas. And I believe, as we see in this text, that the problem is not the seductive woman who set a trap for me, as Solomon says. I don't think that he's blame shifting here. In Genesis, Adam tried that ploy. It was the woman you gave me. And then what did the woman say? It was the serpent that you brought into the garden. So first we blame the woman, then she blames the serpent and God. Both were blaming actually God. It was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent that you brought. We love to blame shift. We love to not take responsibility for our actions. And I don't think that's what Solomon's doing here. I don't think he's shifting the blame of the seductive woman. I think he's revealing the weakness of his heart, the human heart, the, the warning that, yes, there are various seductions out there. These things are common to all people, sexual sin, popularity, peer pressure, the desire for comfort, getting things our way. All of us have this song of the sirens that lures us and draws ourselves away from safety because we just want a little bit of it. But this is just Solomon letting us know that traps are being set for us and letting us know that we are weak. Despite being in God's image, maybe even having some wisdom here and there, we're still not God. And we ought to recognize this before we fall for the trap. 
In 1 Peter, Peter says this, that the enemy roars like a, roams like a lion. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The enemy is setting traps for you. And yet many of us are asleep at the wheel, presuming upon our own wisdom, presuming upon God's approval of our life. As Pastor Eric shared last week, just focusing in on the tiny little speck in someone else's eye. Meanwhile, we've got this log that's jutting out of our eye. We're, just, we're nitpicking everyone else. And meanwhile, we've just got all this sin in ourselves. And we cruise through life just saying, oh, I'm good. I'm good. But see, church, a trap is only a trap if you don't see it. Right? Uh, a trap is a trap if you don't see it. So I'm telling you, there are things that are traps in your life that you don't see. That's why we call them blind spots. You can't see blind spots. If you could, they wouldn't be blind spots. There are things that you're aware of in your life, but there are also things that you're not aware of. There are traps that are set. There are blind spots that you have, that I have. And then we have to be aware of these things, become more and more aware of these things. And so I ask myself, and I'm asking you, what are these weaknesses? What are some weaknesses maybe that you would ask the Lord, say, show me some weaknesses I don't see right now. What are the sirens in your heart? Solomon knew his a bit late, but he knew his. He only had one out of a thousand friends that were good, and he had a very poor choice in women. He had a thousand poor choices in women. But what are yours? Do you recognize that your heart will scheme to get those things? Your heart will convince you that you're safe. That's what Solomon did. He somehow convinced himself that this was okay. Somehow your heart's gonna scheme to convince yourself that this particular instance in your life isn't actually sin. Well, it's not like I'm doing this. It's only this. It's not that bad. It's not like what these guys are doing. It's just this little thing here. We convince ourselves that if we just have ourselves tied to the mast of the ship, we don't actually wanna have the thing. We just want a little taste of it. But before we get too close, we end up making mistakes and our heart then blames someone else. We might say things like, well, I know this probably isn't wise to do, but I'm gonna do this anyway and here's why. Or our four favorite words, but this is different. I know it's not good, I know I shouldn't be doing this, and I should be, but this is different. Proverbs chapter six, this is Solomon. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? He's saying, can you carry like just a thing of fire right here and not ever have your clothes be burned? After a while, your, your clothes are gonna catch fire. It's where we get the phrase. What's the phrase? Oh, if you play with fire, I knew there was a phrase. <laughs> if you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. You can't carry fire in your, next to your chest and not have your clothes be burned. We can't get close to these things without getting somehow burned. In Proverbs 14, 12, he says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You might think that the way you're doing things is okay. It seems right to you, but the end is death. It might be relationships. You have a weakness for men or for women. Always need a boyfriend, always need a girlfriend. Might be something physical, like alcohol or other substances. There's some people that should just completely stay away from drinking or whatever it might be. Maybe it's social media. 
Maybe you're addicted to, to what people think about you. Or maybe you're longing for someone else's life. You can't keep your phone down. You can't keep those social media apps closed. We've got to learn how to fight these things. I'm not saying that any one of those things is wrong. Social media is nothing inherently sinful about that. God gave alcohol to the world. Nothing inherently sinful about that. Obviously relationships, nothing sinful about that in itself. But these things start taking control of us. We need to learn how to fight the sin, the temptation in our hearts. You should know your sin clearly. Seek to know your sin clearly, but you should behold his beauty more deeply. That's how we fight our sin. What I mean by that is sometimes I think we behold our sin far too deeply. Our identity becomes what we've done in the past or maybe what we're doing right now. Our past, our weaknesses, those things become our identity. We see ourselves through a lens of what we've done, the wrong things we've done. It's what defines us. The shame defines us. The condemnation defines us. Church, I know you've done things that you regret. I've done things that I regret. I know there's been words spoken to you from other people that have found a home in your brain and in your heart that shouldn't be there. People have said things. Maybe they've called you certain names or certain descriptions or adjectives or described you or gossiped about you. And somehow that roaring lion that's creeping around, he planted that trap. You stepped into it somehow and now you believe that those things that those people said is true and that's now your identity. I know this because this is how I live often. The church, I have good news for you today. There is something else and indeed even someone else that can actually give you your true identity. See, sin is a worship issue. What I mean by that is that we get into sin because we worship something that isn't God. We worship acceptance, we worship popularity, we worship women or men or relationships. We make those things so ultimate that we chase after them. That's what gets us into trouble. Odysseus worshiped the song of the siren. So worship is a sin issue. Or sin is a worship issue, sorry. We worship our way into sin. That's how we get ourselves into sin. And so to get ourselves out of sin, we have to worship our way out of sin. We have to refocus our worship. Stop worshiping the desire for popularity, the, the, uh, the desire for relationships, for companionship, for comfort, whatever it might be, and start worshiping the one person who can actually bring us true identity, true joy, true peace. You and I worship the things that seem right to us, but there is someone better, someone greater, someone who is truly worthy of giving our hearts to, giving our lives to giving our, our love and our devotion and centering our life around. And that's the one man who came to this earth upright and remained upright throughout his whole entire life, even to death. Jesus Christ, God himself, became a man. And this man is not just simply the image of God. Not, he is not just a mirror no, the Bible says he's the exact imprint of God because he is God. An unbroken 
imprint, unbroken mirror of God, the exact imprint of God the Father. And he's given us the greatest gift, his, these great promises. The upright man of God became the broken man of God upon the cross, became a shattered mirror as he took upon our sin. He became distorted in the Father's eyes as he took on our sin, our filth, our shame, our condemnation, taking that to the cross. And the promise that he gives us if we believe, if we admit our sin and our inability to earn righteousness on our own, but rather just trust in his righteousness given to us, he gives us eternal life, causes us to become born again, alive on the inside, and promise us eternal life. Earlier this week, I was talking with a young guy, and the topic of religion came up, and I was asking him some questions about how he thinks that people get to heaven. And he shared with me a, a common response that, you know, be a good person. And, and as we talked through uh, this, I, I said, do you know the story of the thief on the cross? Have you ever heard that story? And he said, yeah, kind of. I said, here's the thing about this guy. This guy was, lived his whole life. He was a thief. And he's being executed rightly, justly, he deserved his punishment. He's dying next to Jesus. And in this moment, he sees Jesus, and for some reason, he believes that this is truly the Son of God, that if this thief has any hope of going to heaven, it's through this guy next to him, because this thief knows that he can't make it. And I was telling this, this guy that the thief said, would you remember me when you are in your kingdom? I saw this boy that Jesus looked at him and responded and said, I tell you this very day, I promise you today, you will be with me in paradise. And I was telling this kid, this guy did nothing. He said if he went through his whole life and had a white outfit and marked his clothes with a black marker every time he'd sinned, by the time he was hanging on that cross, he would have black clothing from head to toe. So what makes that guy able to get into heaven? And I asked him, I said, now, if, if you had marked your clothing every time, what would you look like? And he said, I'd probably also, at only age 16, I'd probably also already have black head to toe. I said, I think you would too. So what makes you, you're a good kid, but what makes you, and what makes this guy so presumptuous to think that you can walk up to him and say, hey, let me in. Look at how great I am. Look at all my good deeds. We go through life thinking that we have to put a black mark and we have to try to erase the black mark. But even if you did a good job erasing a Sharpie from white, you're still going to see the stain of that sin. But I said, no, what happens, the reason why he could believe this promise that Jesus said to him, Jesus promised today, this very day, you'll be with me in the exact place that me, God, where I'm gonna be, you're gonna be standing there right with me. The reason why he could believe that is because in that moment, that thief took off his black garments and he put those garments on Jesus as Jesus died on the cross and Jesus became ugly sin. He became a broken mirror in the sight of God the Father and Jesus took off his perfect white robe, never had a single mark of Sharpie even come close to that clothing. Walked through this life perfectly, the upright man of God. And he takes off his white robe and he says, I'm gonna trade with you right now, right here on this cross. I'm trading with you. You want my clothing? You wanna see me in heaven? Put this on. This will get you right in the door because you walk up, you knock, God the Father opens up, he says, come on in, my son. You're my son. Those are my son's clothing. Come on in. 
You're now my son. I've adopted you because you're now wearing the clothing of my son. You've become my son. This is why we call it the good news. Because whether you're a a pretty good 16-year-old or you're a thief on a cross, we all get to go to the place where Jesus is by faith through his grace, this gift. I want to pray now and thank the Lord that even though the sirens of our life promise us beauty and joy and fulfillment and comfort and all those things, these things actually do end in destruction. But I want to thank the Lord that his promises are true, that yes, we have fallen short. Yes, we've all gone astray. Solomon knows he is both a sinner but also someone who God is pleased with. I'm thanking the Lord today that even though I am a sinner, I know that God is pleased with me, not because of what I've done. No, my, my garments are black. But though I am a sinner, God is still pleased with me because I wear the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And I want to thank God for all of us this morning that God has done this for us as his gift to us. Father in heaven, we are shocked and amazed at what you've done for us. Even this morning as I was praying and recounting even my conversation with this uh, young man and just remembering this week, thinking a lot this week about how you just completely interrupted my life. I don't know why you chose to save me. The only, I, mean, I know the answer is just because you're good, because you're merciful, not because I'm good. I'm, I was doing my own thing, but because you're good. You didn't have to show mercy to me. You didn't have to show me grace, but you did. And you chose me before the foundation of the earth, before I could even have the ability to be good or bad or choose this or that. In mercy and grace, you chose me, not because of anything I've done, and despite, actually, everything I've done. You've justified me, and now you're at work in me, and you're at work in us. You're at work in this church, and God, you've promised your church that you will finish the good work that you began in us, in our church, in our lives, and we thank you for that. We are grateful, God for your love and your kindness towards us. We thank you for all these things in the mighty and sufficient and upright name of Jesus Christ. Amen.